Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdell. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to George Stevens Jr. who is the author of My Place in the Sun: Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. What you say? Haven't we had this episode before? No. We did have an episode about him writing the book and we did talk to George, but we wanted to talk to him one more time because the audio version of the book is out and that is a great version to listen to if you haven't already read the book because um George has a very distinct voice not only in terms of his writing but in terms of his voice voice so it's great to listen to those stories directly from the author's mouth so to speak If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, share and do all those things I ask you to do every week, but before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. It's hard work. It takes a lot of time, but I and also if you're a filmmaker or you know you, you know everything's done in the editing. <laughs> so I had to, uh you know and, and your own voice you're particularly picky. Um that had a wonderful editor in the, in this virtual world a fellow named Mark Gallup in Nashville who does a lot of the major books. And he was very he, he he before we started he said I know your background and I'm willing to work as hard on this as you are. <laughs> so I never felt that I was <clears throat> imposing on him by going over and over stuff. <clears throat> was there anything that when you were rereading the book uh, for the audio book when you were recording it was there were there any um, it sort of gave you an opportunity to look at the book again I imagine and and go through those stories was there anything that sort of surprised you? No, you know, I it was really interesting. Uh there were a few things I needed to adjust just for practical reasons, but it made me feel rather good about the book that I wasn't cringing or saying, "Oh my god, I've got to change this or do this." So I was very happy from that standpoint. And how how is the reception of the book being for for you? I mean, I've read some really nice reviews out there and you know, I imagine I imagine there are a lot of people who it's it's refreshing a lot of memories of their own experiences as well. It is. I mean, I've just been uh so touched by the response. I mean, you know, kind of busy people um 
who read every, you know, insist they read every page and and what they took from it. And, you know, it certainly seems to uh, intrigue readers. And, and I'm happy about that. In a way that we've got a, a real fascination at the moment with that period of Hollywood. I'm thinking of uh, some films which have come out in the last year or so, you know, uh, I mean, a little bit earlier, the Damien Chazelle film, a little bit earlier, obviously, in terms of the period Hollywood. And you had um, Andrew Dominic's Blonde as well going over uh, uh, sort of. But but they, those films seem to give a, a very dark image of Hollywood. Do you recognize any of that that version of Hollywood when, when you... you know, no, I, I really didn't relate much to Blonde or Babylon. Uh, mm. They just, you know, it's... Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to become the film critic, but those did not connect to me. And, and, and indeed, they were dark. Uh, but, you know, and, and in the case of Babylon, I admire the director, and I, somehow I just never got engaged with the story. It's, yeah, it's a um, I, yeah. I, I know what you mean. I there was one scene in that film where uh, Brad Pitt's character talks to a gossip columnist, and it was like it was by far the best moment in the movie, and it was just two people in a room talking, and that was the best uh, thing in the whole yeah. film. And it was just like, oh, we yeah. need a bit more of that. We needed a little bit less of the parties and the and a bit more of two people actually having a human conversation. I I I I do think about today. The, the the sort of sustainability of the films of that era. Mm. Uh, of course, Turner Classic Movies is uh, prominent in the United States, but there are just so many good films and engaging films of that period. And I'm trying to sort it out whether it's, you know, because one wants to be cautious that, you know, one that you have the have old timers disease, mm. uh, but there there are not as many films of any other era that seem to connect over such a long period of time with the audience. And of course, I'm involved. Well, first from the standpoint of of the American Film Institute and film preservation, but and then in a particular sense with my father's films, which it has been a kind of a part-time job, the scene that they continue to exist and are restored. But you know, this is the, Shane is 70 years old this year. And, my word. And, and, and people seem to be absorbed when they watch it. And uh, last year we did a restoration of Giant and uh, Steven Spielberg called me uh, a year before that and said, your father's giant is a masterpiece. I think with the 4K tools that the long dissolves, it could be greatly improved. And uh, and, and he got the Film Foundation and, to, and we collaborated on a restoration. And for those who don't remember, many passages in the film the storytelling is 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 overlapping dissolves and of course from from that era there was not a three strip technicolor it was single strip eastman color and they didn't save the elements so you have that kind of deg degradation and some of the beauty of the film that style of storytelling was muted and we did this restoration, and it was Stephen and I introduced it at the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival last uh, April. And we went to the Chinese theater, and we talked about the film uh, with Ben Mankiewicz, uh, the host of Turner Classics. Then watched this audience. I did say at the introduction that it was 65 years ago last year that Giant premiered at the Chinese theater in Hollywood. Wow. And they and Ben asked for a show of hands how many had seen it, how many had seen it on the big screen, how many hadn't seen it at all. You know, I guess a thousand people were there in the IMAX theater with a huge screen seeing this film that just unfolded as if it were made yesterday and its themes of the independent woman 
the the conflicts with racial with the Hispanic population and so much else immigration made it so current for today so it is a pleasure when when some of these great films uh, last and can be seen in their best form that's a film that has such a legacy as, of influence as well i've i watched it recently i rewatched it because of uh, because working on the terence malick book and days of heaven mm-hmm. has you know, it has obvious influences, and there will be blood. Would be another one that I think is very influenced by Giant, and and so those are you know two yeah. cla- classics in their own right. But they they all have this lineage, I guess. You know, it's interesting. You, you remind me. I, I know you're writing a book about Terrence Malick. Um, just an odd thing, Terry said to me one day <clears throat> years ago when he was a fellow at the AFI. And I think we had screened Giant um, because we were talking about Giant. And he said, he said, kind of shook his head. He says, you know, I could never do that scene with the turkey where the children, they're they're out in the garden and Leslie, his mother's and father's house, and they see the turkey and then the turkey's they're having this joyous Thanksgiving dinner and the turkey comes in and the kids start to cry. <laughs> and then the, it develops with a, a letter from Bick and all of that. But it was just funny, but Terry, uh, Terry sort of said, I, I, I don't think I can do that. But what would see, what would he find difficult, uh, getting the children to cry or? Well, I, th- I think just the concept that it right. was Laurel and Hardy, you know, right. I mean, it, it's was it just a you know a, a, a different skill. It's really interesting uh, you saying about watching these films in their original format because when I go to film festivals, I always try to go to see the retrospectives because even if I've seen a film four or five times, seeing it on the big screen in that format is is like seeing it for the first time. Isn't it? And it it is. You're happy that people are seeing it on, you know, television, you know, in good form, I guess, on their phones. But uh, it's just such a vast difference of, uh, you know, uh, we made a film when I was working at USIA during the uh, Kennedy years on the march, the March on Washington, James Mm. Blue. And actually, it was a very good film. It stands the test of time with Martin Luther King's great speech, but I would run it in a screening room at USIA and we made it in 35 millimeter, but we also had 16 millimeter prints and it was about a 40 seat screening room. And I could tell the difference in the response when I'd run it with a 35 millimeter print and a 16 millimeter print. You know, it's an emotional experience and people just more, uh, more engaged and more feeling uh, with the CRISPR image, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a sort of immediacy that comes out with that with that experience, and I think today, especially, the idea that you go to the theater and you hopefully are not looking at your phone and hope and it absorbs your attention completely. You know, I think that is something which which the the theatrical experience excels at. It, it does. Thinking about your father's movies, and uh, you you mentioned Shane, which, by the way, I, I only recently, I think it was following our conversation, I read the novel that Shane based on. And uh, it is a great read. It was one of those um, uh, Library of America editions of anthology of Western novels. And so I, I read that and a few others, all of which I think had been made into films. I think it was The Oxbow Incident, Shane and the Searchers was the other one. Did I, did I tell you? Did I tell you about my summer job? My father was back from the war and I graduated from high school. <clears throat> I was 17 and I didn't have anything to do before going to college. Then he said, do you want to help me? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you have to, there are two tasks. One is I want you to break down and put in two, two notebooks, part one and part two of Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy. This characters, the situations, because he was about to start the screenplay of A Place in the Sun based on the Dreiser book. And the other was to read the books and scripts that came from Paramount, you know, for his consideration. And I was, as I say, 17 and reading a lot of treacly love stories on hot summer afternoons, which was not very compelling for, for me. 
And one afternoon, I, a book was on the pile, and I picked it up, a small book, and he, and I read it, and I went over to my father's bedroom that night and said, Dad, this is really a good book. I think you ought to read it. Well, uh, and, but he said, uh, why don't you tell me the story? So I paced around his bedroom, trying my best to tell him the story of Shane. And then the next summer, I had my first job uh, working on the location of Shane in Wyoming. <clears throat> What was that experience like? To work on a film with with that kind of ambition, though I don't think any people were especially conscious of its ambition, <clears throat> it was just a you know such a, an experience to kind of cut one's teeth on the on the making of a film, and it, it was a script that needed work throughout. And I just to see under pressure how a film is created uh, was extraordinary, and to see. Uh, you know, that fascinating character of Jack Palance arrived from New York and see him for, for two weeks out working with a wrangler, getting on a horse and getting off a horse, drawing a gun and putting it back in the holster. And just to see all the detail that goes on behind the scenes to make these images that eventually become a film. And it was on that picture that I, where I learned that the real experiences in the editing room Mm. Because to see that film put together and the time and patience uh, and the redoing and redoing and sharpening, that, that that is really where the storytelling, so much of the storytelling takes place. It always strikes me as quite a surprisingly violent film as well. The violence is is very, um, you know, I think there's, there's that scene where Palance kills uh, one of the one of the farmers, and he sort of flies through the air. And I don't think I'd ever seen that before in a, in a film uh, of that, no, that uh, vintage. Was, it was always that the, the uh, person gets shot, and he grabs his stomach and falls forward. And in that case, we actually spent an extra day because the street wasn't wet enough. Mm. And Dad had asked them to wet the street. And it wasn't, so we didn't work on Saturday and came back on Sunday to shoot that scene. And then by then, the, the street was a sloshy, muddy, you know, so where that young Elisha Cook Jr. as Stonewall Tory has to walk toward Jack Palance standing on the, on the porch of the saloon, baiting him forward and him slipping in the mud. But they had taken him and put a, a, a vest around him and attached wires to it. And and on the other end of the wires, when the scene was shot, were three uh, grips, stagehands. And when he was shot, and they'd buried a mattress in the mud. And when the, when he was shot by Jack Palance in cold blood, they pulled that thing and he flew back dead into the mud. It's such a, such an amazing effect and so so shocking. Sam Peckinpah referred to that as the scene that changed. You know, he said that the Apaches used to get shot and get up and shoot again. And yeah, and he said after Elisha Cook fell in the mud, there was a change in how people were put away on on the screen. That's so interesting because that's such a again that interesting line between you know the the classics cinema of your your father's period and then going up into into someone like Peckinpah who sort of considered a counter sort of a, a, a revolutionary figure in some ways but you see that he has his inspiration in your dad's work interesting someone just sent me the current sight and sound where Tony Kushner our great American playwright uh and screenwriter of Lincoln three Spielberg films Munich I believe and the Fablemans but Tony is a great artist, and he picked the three films that most influenced him. Uh, William Wyler's The Heiress, Fellini's Amarcord, and Shane. Mm. And he he speaks to the violence and the integrity of the film. My father referred to that shooting of Elisha Cook by Jack Palance. He said, for that, for, for us, that is a Holocaust. Mm. And it was if, that his experience coming back from the war and having seen people shot killed and he was looking at movies and seeing them shoot and get up and shoot again get shot and shoot again and he wanted to express that idea of, of the of the gun and its violence and again how interesting it is that that is a primary issue in our 
American society today, this unwillingness to recognize that it is a deadly weapon. We need some more films with integrity to address those issues. There are there are plenty out there, I'm sure. I'm not, as you say, we don't want to, I, I don't want to succumb to the old man's disease either. Of, uh... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There are some wonderful films out there. I mean, it's a it's an impossible question, I know. But of your father's films, what is is there one that you have a particular? It's it difficult to place every one above the rest. But is there one that you have a particular fondness for? I guess fondness in different ways. Right. Uh, Gunga Dean was the film I used to run on a sixteen millimeter projector when I was eleven years old, and <clears throat> I, it's so resonant with me in the comedy. Um, and the, the you know the, the wit of it, and also the humanity of it, that the the beastie, the water bearer, wants to be a soldier, and he ends up with this wonderful funeral where the British commandant says, "You're a better man than I am, Gunga Dean." You know, I mean, I make it sound awful, but it's a it's still a wonderful film, albeit a colonialist-based film. But Shane and Giant in a Place in the Sun, where you know that trilogy, I really can't single one out. And the Diary of Anne Frank, on which I worked with my father, uh, and Swing Time with Fred and Ginger, mm. uh, perhaps the best, or at least Arlene Croce, the great critic, says it is the true Astaire Rogers picture and so uh, i'm i'm not good at at at, at uh, singling it out and uh, at the turner classic festival this in april alexander payne and i are introducing penny serenade with carrying and irene dunn and I, I just again look forward to seeing it with an audience on a big screen because i bet hardly anybody alive today has seen it on the big screen and those comedies with Cary Grant are so good to see with an audience because they're still... I saw the Philadelphia story in Liverpool at the uh, Royal Philharmonic and uh, yeah. huge theatre, usually used for concert halls, but they have a screen that comes up from the stage and an organist plays yeah. and they show these old films once a month. And we saw it there and um, it was a full house, so it's got to be at least a 1,000 people. And it just people crying with laughter you know it absolutely uh works uh still works to this yeah. day yeah though it is it is extraordinary and i tell you tell your story i went to the 1952 academy awards with my father and um, we were sitting together and joseph mankowitz comes on the stage he'd won the oscar the year before for the lady eve and he reads the nominations john houston for the African Queen, William Wyler uh, for Detective Story, Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris, Elia Kazan for A Streetcar Named Desire, and George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. Well, I wouldn't be telling you this story if John Houston had won. And so, but riding home that night, and I, I must have been about 17 or 18, and my father was driving the car, and the Oscar is on the seat between us, my mother and his actress grandmother in the back seat. And he looked over at me and he said, you know, he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. You know, on that night of triumph, he was aware, and this is before Cinematheques and DVDs and streaming, pictures came and went, but he had in his head, having grown up in the theater, uh, seen his father do the great plays, that, you know, that the test of time was really the measure of art. Well, of course, he didn't know he was talking to the future founder of the American Film Institute, <laughs> of which the test of time would, would be at the heart of its film preservation and training new filmmakers and, and or the Kennedy Center Honors, which uh, was about the test of time and celebrating the um, uh, greatest artists of our time. And, you know, so I, I look back on that and I I now realize, you know, that some something was sparked somewhere. And perhaps it was in that 
conversation. Absolutely. And I, I, yeah, we've just had the Oscars uh, just come and gone quite recently. And and it, and it, he's right that it's not true necessarily that the, the picture that wins the best Oscar or the director who wins the best director, that film then lasts, uh, then passes the test of time. I can think of a few recent winners which we don't really talk about at all today. And, um, you know, despite triumphing on the night, so to speak. Yeah, that you can't imagine that people will be watching in, in 20 years, much less 70 years. And so it is, you know, there are ones that I think will be, but some of the recent ones that you are referring to were really pictures of that particular year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they had something that 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 was there, but um, yeah, perhaps not. Certainly not as enduring as 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 all of the as others other other films who have won. Um, talking about the AFI and your found the the foundation of the uh, of that. I mean, that was a very forward seeing project. How how did that? How did you get involved in? That? I. Had had my early career in Hollywood, and when I, uh, uh, working with my father, then I was directing television, Peter Gunn and Alfred Hitchcock presents, and things like that. And then worked with my father on the Diary of Anne Frank, where I directed the location scenes. And I was moving right along. Sometimes saying to myself, "I'm going to spend my life becoming the second best director in my family," <laughs> and. Uh, then Edward R. Murrow came into my life and asked me to come to Washington. He had agreed to run the United States Information Agency, telling America's story abroad for President Kennedy. And I. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We went there and we made it with actually what they call the golden age of USIA films with all sorts of wonderful young filmmakers making the films. And Kennedy initiated the National Endowment for the Arts, the first funding for the arts by the government, federal government in the United States. And they knew what to do about opera, dance, symphony orchestras, all of that, but movies, they didn't know what to do. You can't give a grant to Warner Brothers, you know? Mm, yeah. Uh, and I had been active in the Kennedy years. I, I kind of became the person to talk to about film. So they asked me, and I suggested an American Film Institute. There was some discussion, and when Lyndon Johnson signed the the legislation in the Rose Garden of the White House for the National Endowment for the Arts, he said to everyone's surprise, we will have a national opera, we'll have a, and that was not to anybody's surprise, the National Symphony, National Ballet, none of which happened. But then he said, and we will create an American Film Institute uh, where young filmmakers will this and that and preserve the films. And suddenly we had an American Film Institute and uh, and I was asked to uh, start it, to run it. Must have been very exciting that period. Was there, Were there any organizations around the world that, that were already going that you could sort of take inspiration from or was it was it the first of its kind? No, no it was not. Um, there, there was, of course, the British Film Institute already active. They were all different. There was a Polish, uh, I went to Poland, to Czechoslovakia, to Russia, uh, Soviet Union. They all had those their institutions. Ours was the first that was kind of, quote, non-governmental, 
although we were dependent upon government funding uh, to a degree. So there were models. And I uh, mm. actually brought Greenwriter from the Czech, the, the Czech Film School, and also Stanislaus Vol, a wonderful cameraman from the Polish Academy, uh, were with me when we started AFI. And later, later Jan, Kav- Jan Kadar was, uh, was on the staff, and Rossellini came for six, six weeks. And we very much looked to the European experience in creating our, our own. In those uh, early days of the AFI, when you had that first year, we, we've again, we, we have talked about this, but it seems like such an exciting period when you have you know, Terry Malik and you have uh, David Lynch in the second year and Paul Schrader in the first year. There's a, there's a sense in your book of that being a, a moment where you can, yeah, I can almost hear the sort of hammering of the carpenters in the background as you start the school. <laughs> it really was. I mean, we, we took over this big mansion in Beverly Hills, which the city of Beverly Hills controlled, but didn't know what to do with. And they gave it to us for a dollar a year. But then we went through a terrible fight with the city of Beverly Hills because the neighbors in these very fancy houses around Greystone, which the the mansion was called, were very nervous about having a bunch of film students. And I I had to admit that sort of at least 30 percent of the of our fellows, as we call them, bore a passing resemblance to Che Guevara. Bearded young people kind of coming up to the gates of this mansion made them nervous, but we worked it out. And uh, it, it was an interesting one day, a great time at uh, AFI. I mean, that's wonderful theater. We called it the Great Hall. I mean, it's probably 80 seats, but great projection. Um, and we'd have guests. And Fellini came, and Fellini had just made Satyricon. And he came one night to do a seminar with the fellows, and they had been screening his films leading up to that. And I got calls, I remember from Jack Lemon, Sam Fuller, uh, and, and a couple of others, can, can you get me in? <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to hear Fellini talk, and, and they came. And Federico came with Tony Quinn and his wife, uh, Giulietta Messina. And Tony and Federico and I sat at the front, and we had this conversation with the fellows. And one of the the uh, tensions at the AFI school was we were kind of proceeding with this idea of, you know, a cinematic idea based on uh, storytelling. And we had certain beliefs about it, whereas the students were, a lot of them were very influenced and and the word very much at large was improvisation. And when there was discussion of writing the screenplay, they said, well, Bob, we're going to, we're going to improvise that. And Tony Vani, who was very, became the real architect of the teaching at AFI, was consistent about you know, storytelling. And so during the, toward, toward the end of the seminar, Fellini was obviously tremendously engaging and, and witty. And a fellow stood up and said, Mr. Fellini, we've been seeing your films and I know that you, uh, that you, 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 you do a great deal of improvisation and I'd like you to talk about improvisation. And I remember Federico said to Tony Quinn, improvisatore? Yeah. And Quinn said, not a yeah, improvisatore. He says, ah, he says, no, no, no. He says, for me, he says, no, I create preparation. He says, for me, making a movie is like for you Americans sending a man to the moon. <laughs> and, uh, and it really, it totally diffused this insistence on improvisation that had been our been been a bit of a, a, a roadblock in our progress which and to say that this is not to say that you don't do improvisation everybody does to a degree in films but we were contending it's not the basis of great films yeah, it's it's not the starting point. It might be a, a tool that you yeah, use along the way. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you had some some amazing names in that early. Even so, I, I remember re- in the book as well. I think you mentioned that John Cassavetes has an office in the in the AFI. He did. Yeah, he was a filmmaker in res- residence for a year. I forget which of his films he was working on, and 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 of course, and John was you know, kind of illustrates that we were not, as we were sometimes accused of, you know, wanting to make Hollywood factory films. We knew what good filmmaking was and is. And and John 
was actually a filmmaker who depended a great deal on improvisation and did it so skillfully. <clears throat> How would he interact with the fellows then? Would he be, would they be, would he give a, a couple of lessons or would they just have conversations? Or? They'd have conversations and, um, and they occasionally run films with him and he was just a presence, a guy you could talk to. That's also what I love about the AFI is this idea that there, there does seem to be quite a large number of mavericks who become mm -hmm. encouraged and promoted. And uh, I'm thinking also of Orson Welles as a figure that comes up in the book, uh, honoured by the AFI. Did he did he actually do any teaching as part of the AFI or come in and speak to the students? I don't think Orson ever was at, at the AFI school, no. <clears throat> but of course, he, he, he was one of those figures who you had quite, <laughs> that you wished to promote, sort of ensure his legacy remained. Right. Well, we started the AFI Life Achievement Award, which would honor the people who, in a fundamental way, had advanced the art of film, in the air quotes. Uh, John Ford was the first, and James Cagney was the second. And you could see us going along to Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart and William Wyler and etc. But in the third year, in part because of this kind of AFI being criticized as a as a creature of the industry uh which we were not uh, we we honored orson wells and it was a choice of some controversy as some people complained but of course orson was majestic and his work could not be questioned by serious people and and he was a great presence, and uh, you know I, I I was tremendously fond of Orson. <clears throat> it it must have been a delight, sort of uh, sort of entertaining and and just having conversations with these people, having a, an opportunity to sort of see them in that context. Yeah, it, it was, and uh, Orson right, and he accepted the award um, in the name of all the. Mavericks. The subtitle for your book is refers to your life as being split between Hollywood and Washington, and and so I, I'd like to talk a little bit as well about the sort of political that that mix of culture and politics because nowadays we talk about that mixed in, in a very antagonistic sort of the culture wars is the phrase that you you hear banded around. Do you think there's a, a way back to a more constructive conversation? I do. But I, I don't see it on the near horizon. Right. Uh, you know, I've, as you point out, I've been involved in <clears throat> movies and, and politics. I was 29 when I went to work <clears throat> for Murrow and Kennedy. And so I've been, you know, kind of close to politics for through many presidencies. All during that period, I never questioned you know, we had Watergate, we had the Vietnam War that went on and on, <clears throat> that I never questioned whether our democratic system was was going to continue as it was. And, and in recent years, you know, thoughtful people really, you know, worry that, that, you know, this is a rather fragile idea, this constitutional democracy. And if we are going to flout the rules and <clears throat> no rules pertain, uh, where does that take us? And and it relates to your question of, uh, you know, how, how can a country nourish the arts in an inspiring way in this divisive climate where people are going to be suspect or if you give money to something, they're going to find a reason to, to make them to cancel. And so it's a tough time. And uh, I, I do believe if I have an optimism that persuades me that that we will work our way through this. Yeah, I, I think there are those great, uh, you know, we, we do have those filmmakers, we do have those artists who are alive today and who are active mm -hmm. today. And, you know, it reminds me of W.H. Auden's, you know, 1939, September 19, you know, little, little glimmers of light, you know, across mm -hmm. the darkness. And of course, that was probably much, well, that was definitely a very dark time in human history. So if Alden can find glimmers of light, I'm sure we can too. Well, it's it, it interesting. I'm not at, at a stage where I can talk about it specifically, but my project I'm working on now um, has to do with the telling of a great story of how, not not, not the subject of the, the, how the American government came to the rescue, you know, that uh, in a, not in a propagandistic way, but it happens to involve fascinating characters.
but I think uh, films can reflect some of these eras where uh, the the government did its job and was respect did its job and was respected. That can be important. Absolutely, yeah. And I just just it's just that idea that there is a cultural there are cultural norms that there are. I mean, you've referred a couple of times to you know thinking people or serious people, you know. And I, I, we need, we just need more of those. We need as many of those as possible, and we need a culture that values, you know, for want of a better word, intellectuals and and people who are going to think seriously about something. Yes, you know that uh, it's a it's a it's a crying need in, in in our country, and you just have to hope that we galvanize enough people. And I must say, there are certainly many creative and bright and committed filmmakers who are, you know, in that spirit, just in the terms of of the way they live their lives. And I'm looking forward to Christopher Nolan's film about Oppenheimer. Me too. I read the biography in... in, in preparation. Yes. Something, you know, because he's, when he turns his attention to something, he he generally comes through with something of great worth. Absolutely, absolutely. And he's of course someone who's who's very much working in the medium of film as uh, resisting the um, onslaught of digital uh, and sort of keeping to keeping the faith with uh, with film as film as celluloid. Yes, and, and with um, with themes that uh, are adult themes rather than uh, Marvel Comics themes. Uh, you mentioned Tony Kushner earlier, but uh, the Fablemans, which was uh, released recently, I'm sure that's a, a film that you've you've had an opportunity to see. Yes, and I think it's a lovely film, and particularly enjoyed David Lynch as John Ford at the end. Well, I was going to ask because you've met both of them. So, <laughs> how close was he? How, how was he? So... It was. Really- Really, quite, quite astonishing uh, that he captured that uh, that uh, sense of John Ford. No, that was a wonderful idea of Stevens, and and, uh, and of course, uh, just a wonderful collaboration. Well, David Lynch would have met John Ford as well, because in the AFI, Did, didn't Ford come in and do and and give a few talks? He did I'm trying to. Yeah, he was there. When David was there, yes. It just shows, it's, it's like when you were saying earlier about uh, Alexander Payne presenting the film uh, with you later on in, in April. Just these, you know, the connections between all these filmmakers that, that continues. Yes, and and I kind of value that be, be just to, be, to connect with that next generation down or two in the case of alexander i'm also uh also todd field who i think did such a brilliant job with tar he's an afi graduate and uh and i enjoy being connected with, with you know the, the, this younger generation which is an antidote to old timers disease i'm on the board of afi i have been now for over 50 years <laughs> since the beginning and I, I'm, 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 I respect Bob Ghazali, who's the president of AFI. And uh, in fact, you know, we talk about things and we're talking about a new and uh, to consolidate and make accessible um, all of the information that AFI has in its archives which is not right now as available as it should be. One in particular that I know you'll never be able to give me, but I I so much want to see Terry Malick's first film, Lantern Mills, because... uh... The the full title was, and I don't know why, but those those things stick in your brain, Lantern Mills, Cincinnatus Heiner of the West. I have no idea what the subtitle was meant, but I just remember that's how it was always listed on our production sheets. Yeah, I've not I've not been able to get a hold of a copy or um, all my requests have been turned down. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a holy grail. Isn't that interesting? You know? Yeah. Terry and I worked together on, uh, I worked with him on the Thin Red Line. Right. And Terry would not allow a still camera anywhere near the set. And that for there was one picture of Terry that was approved for use. So he has a sense of his own uh, personal identity that's uh, that he exercises uh, strenuously. Having written this this wonderful memoir, was is there a feeling as well of um that you you'd like to um write something else in this vein, uh, some sort of a, maybe a closer look at something? You no, know, I think that I've done it. I'm very happy with what I've written. It's and it's it's 
one of the by, byproducts of it for me is that I've been able to have these discussions and an opportunity to hear from readers, to talk about things and interests to expand on. And, and in writing the book, I uh, I now look back on it. And uh, one thing that comes to mind is, is that I had, um, and my wife Liz, we ended up by virtue of me being uh, the founder of the American Film Institute, having a life in Hollywood and having a life in Washington. And the Kennedy Center Honors, we, we honored 198 of the greatest artists of our time. And that we had the most amazing people in our lives. Mm. And in reading the book, I realized that uh, how much of, of what you value in life is the people that you know and worked with. And and so I, t- I kind of have a better understanding of why I wrote the book. I had these stories that I thought I wanted to I wanted to talk about these people. Yeah, it's a way of sort of bringing them back. Yes. The last time we talked, you you said the person you were most starstruck by was John F. Kennedy. That meet inspired a lot of your life. It, well, it was it was in response to someone asking me which movie star made the hair on your whatever you know kind of question, and I I don't really think of any of them that way. And then later I thought of. That, that when I met John Kennedy for the first time, it had that, you know, it was before color television and to see him kind of walk into a room un- unexpected in black tie uh, with the, out of the s- s- snow outside with no overcoat and just walk into a room and you see him in a close up. Uh, he was exceptional in that way. And that I had the opportunity to work with him and he took an interest in the films we were making. And <clears throat> he had such a gift of expression um and one thing that i kind of wrote down one of his uh when i was working on these films at usia and in this invigorating job working for edward r murrow and he and he spoke of the greek the ancient greek definition of happiness the full use of one's powers along lines of excellence and i thought my god that is the opportunity that he and Murrow have given me this is what i'm doing uh, and i was so happy <laughs> and i and i stayed with that phrase and another and another one just led to the kennedy center honors the afi was in the john f kennedy center for the performing arts in washington at the time it was built and i proposed the kennedy center honors by saying there's an idea of the show that the Kennedy Center should be doing, and it's carved in the walls of this building. The words of the president, I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty, that will reward achievement in the arts the way we reward achievement in business or statecraft. That was the event in the television show, honoring the great artists. So in so many ways, he was an inspiring figure. And also that sort of new frontier attitude. Uh, I mean, I was in a big government agency, but I felt uh, I could do anything that, you know, that anything was possible. So it, it is uh, someone I remember in that way. It's just so inspiring. And I I, I would love to have a, a larger dose of that today, although I'm sure it will come. I'm sure we will have we, we will ha- we will see better days. I, mean, I, I think we, we, we I think we have to believe that. <laughs> and I think that's the way things happen. What, what have you been reading, George? By the way, recently, have you been have you read any decent any good books? I always like to promote other people's books on this uh, on the podcast as well. Anything about Hollywood specifically? I'm just thinking. I I, I reread Lillian Ross's picture. Oh wow! The, uh, the the long long piece she wrote in the New Yorker about John Huston uh, making uh, the African Queen, um, which is available. And anybody who wants a really good Hollywood story with the sort of barbed eye of a really tough reporter from New York, Lillian Ross was uh, uh, was that a wonderful writer. And it and at that time when Lillian Ross came to Hollywood after that, she was quite a figure, and she asked to have dinner with my father and uh, Ivan Moffat, who was raised in England, had an English accent. And was he with my father during the war and worked with him on Shane and A Place in the Sun and Giant, uh, said, Lillian would like to have dinner with you. And and Dad said, fine. And he said, and then George invited a fellow named Peckham 
who ran the fishing department of a store on Wilshire Boulevard, and and another guy who was the quartermaster of his army unit. And I said, George, Lillian doesn't, this is not what she's going to expect him. And he said, so, so we went to dinner and Lillian was absolutely charmed. They had a wonderful night and she ended up thinking George was a real regular guy, <laughs> which of course was what he intended. <laughs> Look at me with my friends, my, my down to earth friends. Yeah, brilliant. Excellent. Oh, that's wonderful. That, thank you for that recommendation. I've just been recently reading uh, Pauline Kael, uh, rereading Pauline Kael, I should be saying, and that um, her her barbs are, you know, talking about barbed, her barbs are, are scintillating. Thank you so much, George, for, for agreeing to talk to me once more. It's just always it's such a pleasure. And uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch, John. Thank you for having me back. I'm proud to be on your podcast. So that was my conversation with George. I had a great time talking to him. It's a huge privilege to talk to someone who has met and dealt with so many people uh, from the history of Hollywood, so many people in the present day Hollywood as well, as you can hear, uh, and somebody who's just so got so many interesting things to say, um, a, a wonderful, wonderful guy and someone who's very generous in supporting this podcast. And, and so... Um, if you haven't already, you definitely need to pick up a copy of his book, My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington, uh, which is now also available as an audio book. So you like podcasts, you'll love audio books. It's obvious, isn't it? Right. Next week is going to be our 100th episode, and uh, it might come out a little bit later. We're trying to get dates and everything organized, but hopefully it will be a guest worthy of our 100th episode i'm sure it will any guest would be worthy of our 100th episode because all our guests are great so there you go i'm not going to do anything special but it is going to be the 100th episode so maybe you want to i don't know buy me a present or blow out candles or make a cake or something of that kind excellent so until then until next week take care